Genesis 2, uh, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the, of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would impress upon us the thrust of this passage, the, the meaning that you had the reason you wrote it uh, the many years ago uh, the, for the audience then, as well as the, the meaning for us here today in 2017. So Lord, would you speak, uh, speak loudly, boldly, uh, directly to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, this is exciting. Um, I think we, we all have groans. You have groans. I have groans. Um, we, have, we have aches. There's aches in our world. I mean, we can think of this past week, Las Vegas. I mean, Wow. We can think of Charlottesville. We can think of all of the aches and groans in our world. And we, we, I'm excited about this because we're in Genesis and we get a look and a sneak peek of what the world is supposed to be like. Not the way it is, the, world, the way it's supposed to be. And that's exciting because we get to see uh, God's design and recapture his intended image for man, for mankind, for our work, and then today uh, for our marriage. And so now this, this whole passage is kicked off in just a rather stunning way. Remember, we're, we're, we're at creation, which is just beautiful. This is before sin entered the world. And so we're in, we're in paradise. We're in the way things are intended to be. The beauty of the world has not been corrupted. Every day is good. At the end of each day, God says, and it was good. It was good. And then in verse 18, something sneaks in. It is not good that man should be alone. Wait, what? <laughs> Something that seems off here. How could God create perfection and it not be good? The phrase here is low tov, which is emphatic. It's not just saying it's not good. It's actually saying it is bad for Adam to be alone right here. And so this is just crazy that Adam was lonely when he had God all to himself. Isn't that wild? That he could be walking in the garden with God talking with the creator of the universe who created time itself. And he was lonely. Like, why would God do that? Why, why would God not just make him full and not have this, this missing part of his heart not filled? I mean, what does that mean that God would create mankind with something missing like that, that it was not good to be alone? What that means to us 
is it shows us the humility, the amazing humility in our creator that he made man in such a way that he needs something else besides God, that he needs another human being, that he needs a partner. And this is just radical. I mean, who does that? And so God creates Adam and then tasks him to name all of the animals. All of the animals. <laughs> I don't know how long that might have taken. Um, I don't know how many animals there were in that day, but in our day today, there are 7 million species to name. And so I'm just wondering how that went. Like dog, cat, uh, horse, uh, Japanese spider crab. Uh, <laughs> just like, we'll call it that. <laughs> like how did that, how, how long would that have taken? Forever. Now, I know, I know he didn't name all those animals like that. Not every individual animal. He named an animal according to its kind. And so he named a dog and that included all dogs. But still, there is, that is a long process to name all of these animals. And in that process of naming all of these animals, Adam is realizing the not good. He's realizing how lonely it is. He's realizing he is missing something. And it says here in the text, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now that word helper there, we need to touch on because it's going to be referring to women in a second. We need to hit that. The word helper is Ezer. And the word Ezer does not mean valet. That woman is not Adam's valet. It's not Adam's servant, as we may want that word to mean. That word is actually predominantly used of God in the Old Testament. So that God is Israel's helper. And God is not... Israel's valet. God is not Israel's servant. God is their helper. And then in translated in military context, that word is actually ally, which may fit well with the context because the serpent's about to come in. And so that the woman is, is Adam's ally. And so for, for us here, the, the helper is, is emphasizing woman's essential contribution, not her inadequacy. Does that make sense? If I ask Jeff, hey, Dude, my car just broke down. Jeff's there for me. And he said, and I said, like, can you help me get it going? Now, if Jeff comes and helps me, he's my helper. Now, is he weaker than me? No, he's helping me. He's helping me get the car going if he helps me. <laughs> but if he gets it going, I'm the weaker one that needed help, that he helps me. And so the emphasis here is, is on, on the helper helping Adam and that there is an equality here. And it says that, also a helper, a suitable one, a suitable fit. And the Hebrew there also means like and opposite. Similar and dissimilar. And you wonder, how can both be true? Well, both can be true if, you, if they complement one another. And so if you have two pieces of a puzzle that are the exact same piece, you put puzzles together, they will not fit with one another. But if you have them different, and not just being different that still are, are still not meshing with one another, but if they're different, rightly different, they complement one another. And so they have to be rightly different and complementary of each other. And that's why I think the, the great theologian of our time, Paula Abdul, must have been studying this text when she said, I take two steps forward, and then I take two steps back. Because when we come together, opposites attract. She must have been studying Genesis 2. Clearly, she's so good. How does she know this? So Adam is naming all of these exotic creatures. He's, he's naming Mexican tree frog. He's naming the velociraptor. And then he's like, this isn't going to do. A man and his dog will not do. 
Like man with animal alone will not do. He's feeling the need. He's feeling the not good of creation and God steps in. And this is where uh, God puts him under. This is where he puts him under with this anesthesia, with this deep sleep. And that's where Jeff Manning is in a good line of work here. He's following God's footsteps in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so God puts man out. He's in a deep sleep. And he does something just radical. He performs surgery with this deep sleep anesthesia, and he creates a woman from his rib, which I don't know how that happens, how you create a human being from a rib, but that's what he does. And I think Matthew Henry summarizes this for us that wondered why, why not the ear, why not the toe, whatever, what part, why is the rib the part of the body he chose? Matthew Henry says, woman is not made out of his head to top him, nor made out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but made from his side to be equal with him. And I think that's a very helpful way of looking at it. But we get to see Adam's response here, and this is, this is beautiful. Adam's response to, to this woman coming on the scene in verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, that at last, that this, is, this is at last, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. I mean, you have to think of like um, Castaway, a man on a deserted island who has not seen a human being yet. He's been looking at animals all day and finally like, this, at last. You have to be thinking of a groom at a wedding. If you ever watch a groom, when the, wife come, when the bride comes down the aisle and they're tearing up, that's the image here of, at last, this is what I've been created for, for you. It's, it's a beautiful scene. And this is before the fall. This is in paradise, and so this is the image of what the marriage is supposed to be, that man, ish, and then from man, the, the woman, isha, see the delight, the appreciation Adam has for his wife, the way it's intended to be. In our, in our world, women are consumed and abused. Women are devalued, they have no voice, their gifting is diminished, their intellect is squashed, and, and, and many times we might say, well, the woman is here uh, for the purpose of childbearing, that has no part in this passage here. It says nothing about children in this passage. The woman is created and valued for herself alone. And so women are created in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And so that they have an equal part in subduing the creation and having dominion over it. Flesh of my flesh, equal. A different role, but equal. But let's get back to the, the main event that's happening here. I think that this is, this is what's happening here. This is the big thing. It's marriage. This is the first marriage ever. The very first marriage ever is happening right here. And the Bible tells us what marriage is in verse 24. And it's three things. It's leaving, it's cleaving, and it's weaving. That helps me. It's leaving, cleaving, and weaving. And if you don't have the first, if you do not leave, man shall leave his father and his mother. If you do not leave, you cannot cleave and weave. Without cleaving and weaving, there is no, wait, without leaving, there is no cleaving and weaving. Say that three times fast. Got me in the first service too. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a physical leaving though. It's not that they have to physically leave. Usually when, when they get married in this time, they get married and they stay in the same town. This leaving is a forming a new primary loyalty. And so that your wife comes first. That your husband comes first. 
And so if you're a dude and you're still talking to your mom about all the big decisions you had before talking to your wife, that's a problem. <laughs> you haven't left. If, if, you're, if, if you're a woman and, you, and your dad tells you to take a job and you take it without even consulting your husband, that's a problem. You haven't left yet. Your loyalties are still with your parents. Now, this leaving doesn't just apply to parents. Your loyalties have to be, have to be solely for your wife and your husband first. It applies to children as well. I'll tell my children, I'll tell Knox sometimes, you know, if they may be saying some talk backing to, to my wife. And instead of saying like, hey, please stop, I'll, I'll jump in. I'll say, that's my wife you're disrespecting. And that scares them. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's your mom. It is your mom, but that's my wife. And I will protect her because she comes before you. Sorry. <laughs> this is true for your friendships too. That your, your, your spouse needs to be your best friend. And if they're not, they need to be on the way to becoming your best friend. This is why singles hate us, because we just ruin all these good friendships. We become boring to you, but that's okay, because my wife is my treasure now. And so once you leave, you can actually cleave. And the word cleave is beautiful. The Hebrew word there is actually to be glued to something. To be glued to something. To unite to someone with this covenantal binding oath promise. And so that you are now glued to one another. You're bound to them. You ever heard someone say, we don't need some stupid piece of paper to tell me that, I, that we love each other? You ever heard that? Okay. I just love you. That's some old tradition. That's just, that's just that's old archaic way of thinking things. We love each other. We're good. Well, translation, I love you, but I don't love you enough to close off all my options is usually what that means. Love needs this framework of binding obligation for it to be fully what it's meant to be. To say, I love you and no other. A wedding promise is proof that you actually have marriage love. Now we, get on, now we can get into one of my, my greatest pet peeves. Maybe not greatest, but one of them. And so if you want to annoy me, if you want to make me very angry, invite me to do your wedding. Not, not that alone, but invite me to do your wedding. <laughs> Never get an invite now. Invite me to your wedding. And then during the time of the vows... Here, say something like this. When, you, when, the time, when it comes time to do the vows, say something like this. Say something like, you are a prism that takes the light of the life and just turns it into a rainbow. <laughs> say something like, you're the lotion that moisturizes my heart. <laughs> Without you, my soul has eczema. <laughs> Say something stupid like that. <laughs> Wedding vows are not just stating the way you feel at this moment, how ridiculous it may be. Wedding vows are prompt future promises of binding love. They're saying, I vow to keep loving you no matter what. They're, they're promises to keep you from running out too quickly. And so I'm, I'm cleaving to you means I'm gluing myself to you so much so that I will never leave you until death do us part. That's the cleaving that's going on here. You're just so beautiful. Who cares, really? I mean, they're, they're, gonna, they're not, they're not going to be beautiful in like, you know, 50 years anyway. So like, who cares? You're all beautiful. You're all beautiful. <laughs> what are you going to do when things get tough? 
What are you going to do when things get tough? That's where the, the cleaving comes in. The, the vows come in. And that's why we say it publicly at a wedding. We say, I vowed to love you. And so that when all these people that come to my wedding and they see me straying and saying, I, I want to leave, they actually can come in and say, no, no, no. You vowed to love her no matter what. That's the beauty of vows. That's the beauty of the cleaving. Now, Jesus and Paul tell us in the New Testament that there are times when you do separate. Right? There are infidelity, and desertion, which includes abuse. We can talk more about that at midweek. We can talk about that one-on-one, very private conversation, I'm assuming. Uh, but there are those times. But in creating marriage, God intends for us to leave, to cleave, and finally to weave. And the, the weaving part is that is the, the, the two shall become one flesh. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's fascinating that, that Adam and Eve are no longer seen as two separate people, but one person one person, and that weaving is, is a reference to sex, yes? And let's just go ahead and say it. God created sex. Thank you, God. It's not evil. To love someone, you must act on it so that when Adam saw his wife, he didn't just say, I love you. No, Adam said, I have to kiss you. <laughs> I have to, I, you have to act on it. For the love to be real, it has to have an action to be acted upon. It needs to be acted upon. And so this, this weaving is, is a reference to that but it's also a reference to the emotional weaving that happens and the spiritual weaving that happens. And so that a, a wife and husband become lost in one another and they are two become one flesh. Now, there are two great errors in talking about marriage that I want to hit. One, the, the very first error that I think is one that we predominantly, we have problems with is that we glorify marriage. That we, we say, Marriage is just so awesome. You should always get married. Anyone who's not married is not even worth living. I shouldn't say something like that, but <laughs> everything was great once I got married. All my problems went away. Sin went away. Me and Kristen, are, we never fight. Um, and that's not true. <laughs> I think my, my, my sin struggles have increased. Um, and Kristen and I fight. Kristen and I have been married 11 years, and I think our 10th year has been our hardest year. We fought a lot. It hurts. We've gone through a lot of counseling. It's tough when the person who can hold your heart in their hands has the power to hurt it. Anyone who's married knows this. You're the person you're most vulnerable with. Marriage is vulnerable. They can crush it. And so do we glorify that? Do we glorify the, the brokenness in marriage and say that's what we're created for? One way we glorify marriage in our traditional culture is we just make it an idol. And we say, that's what it is to, to live. That you're not a whole person until you're married. <laughs> that you're you, the Jerry Maguire, that you complete me. It becomes reality. That my spouse is the answer. And so we're always looking inward. You complete me. You're my idol. You're my mini God. And so we look to each other and that is a recipe for disaster. If, if I say, you will satisfy me. You will be, you will be my, 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 my everything. I won't have anything until I have you. When I have you, I will be made whole. That when this happens, I've just created a God. I've just created you to be my God. And when my God lets me down and when my God sins against me, what do I do then? If you need to be with somebody, you're making relationships and marriage into an idol. 
If you're single and you're always pining for the one, you're making marriage and relationships into an idol. If you're married and you're putting unrealistic expectations on your spouse, you're making marriage into an idol. They can't be your savior. And so what all this you complete me talk just overlooks underhandedly, which is just fascinating that no one thinks about this when we talk about the it's single folks are, are less complete and somehow is that the founder of Christianity and its major theologian in Jesus Christ and in Paul were both single. How is it? Was Jesus and Paul missing anything? No. So single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings than married people. And this also ignores the fact that in 1 Corinthians, Paul says singleness is a gift of God. That he actually encourages it and says, stay single. Don't pine for it. But how can he say that? When Genesis 2 says it's not good for man to be alone. How can he do both? How can you say it's, it's good and not good at the same time? How can it be both? And that's where I, this, this, this is a dilemma. It's a pickle. And that's where I think some theologians are trying to say that, understand this in the way that Paul is saying, yeah, you're missing the blessing of the not good part, the, the, the beauty of the not good, but you're also missing the pains of marriage as well. And that's the part that he's saying that it, to, he's encouraging to stay single. And so what does Adam and Eve's marriage mean for someone with the gift of singleness? Well, it means not waiting around for a husband or wife. It means being an ally or the helper to God and his church, his bride. And with the understanding that the kingdom of God is at hand, and so that your cleaving and your weaving is actually focused on the church and on God's work here on earth, giving yourself over to training younger men and younger women. We have some rock stars here at this church that are doing that right now, that are doing awesome jobs. Of, of loving and training younger men and women on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. So we say thank you to you. Sometimes when we are in this state of singleness, though, we contract what it's, it's called the Seinfeld syndrome. Do you know what this is? Do you guys know what there was? A, there used to be a, a show called Seinfeld uh, with its main guy named Jerry Seinfeld on it. And Jerry always had a new girlfriend every week. He had a new girlfriend every week because each girlfriend that he went after had a problem. Um, so one, one week, one, she, she has man hands, Jim. <laughs> so he dates this girl who's just like a small kind of petite girl, but then she has like huge man hands. It was like breaking lobsters apart with her hand. <laughs> Jerry's like, oh. <laughs> so he, he breaks up with her. She has man hands. Another, another woman he, he dates, she's a low talker. <laughs> I can't hear anything she's saying. And so he, he breaks up with her because she doesn't speak loud enough. Um, another girl, he, uh, he calls Two-Face because in one light, she's beautiful. And the other night, she's a nightmare. She, he calls her Two-Face, and so he breaks up with her. And what Jerry does is he creates this flaw-o-meter. He has the Seinfeld syndrome and that if someone goes past the, a certain flaw, they're not worthy of even seeking after. And so let me tell you something married and unmarried folks alike, there are no perfect spousal prospects. There are none. Nor are you perfect yourself. If you are now gauging their, their flaws, look at your flaws, right? 
In fact, for you singles and married alike, we need to hear this law. This is a law that's as true as gravity. Uh, Stanley Hauerass um, has, has, has made it famous and said this, and I want you to hear this to be true. This is true always. We always marry the wrong person. We always marry the wrong person. You might be thinking, geez, Slim, cheer up. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And what he's trying to say is that you keep thinking like you're going to find the one. Oh, they're my soulmate. They're the one. No, they're not. Give it five years, and you're going to be like, in five years, and be like, what happened? They were the one. They were the one, the one that you married five years ago. They were trying to impress, but now they're, here's the real person who they actually are. And you go, what, what, I, I didn't marry that person. It's okay. You never marry the right person. God's, everyone's changing. Everyone's growing. What do you expect when you put two sinners together? Do you two think that two sinners who are selfish are going to come together and be unselfish all of a sudden? No, they're going to fight for their selfishness. And that's what we, we see in marriage. And this letdown that we find out, this letdown that happens in all marriages, that you, we, we go into it thinking, this, 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 this will, this will satisfy me. This letdown happens. And this is why I think marriage is on the decline in America. Statistically, it's happening. I think we have over-idealized marriage to say that you're the one. You're the butter to my bread, <laughs> right? So much so that we now realize it doesn't satisfy me. And maybe nothing will ever satisfy me. And so then we give up on marriage. And we're now pessimistic about the whole thing. And that leads to the, the second error when we talk about marriage is that first we glorify, but now we just dismiss it. Before we over-idealized it, now we realize it's not that great. Now we're just very pessimistic about it, and we just dismiss it. And so sometimes we do this in just in our current marriages. So we're married, and we, get, we, get, we, we come up, wake up to the fact that it's not what we thought it was going to be. And so now we just become two roommates instead of a husband and wife. We're just cohabitators of the same building. And that's when we're missing out on the goodness here. That's when we're missing out on what Adam's talking about when he says, at last bone of my bones. That's where we're missing out on the beauty and the good of creation. The, this is happening before the fall, the way it's intended to be. And so, yes, my wife has the power to crush me, but she also wields another power that if all bad things happen to me throughout the day and I come home and she gives me one encouraging word, that's another power. That changes you. That's a beautiful thing to have there. With the, with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation coming, you know, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thieves in the door, Martin Luther's kind of seen as the, um, the one who sparked it off, even though there's many, many big characters involved in there. Um, one historian says, if the Reformation was a revolution of theology, Martin Luther's marriage was a revolution of hygiene. <laughs> in that, it said, Martin would say, I, I, I know I was foul with sweat, but I never knew I needed to wash my bedsheets. <laughs> it took until his wife <laughs> buried him to find out how disgusted he actually was. And so we as men, we need you because we're disgusting pigs. And so we, we are complementary of each other. We are like opposite. It is a beautiful thing <laughs> to find out the truth that I am a disgusting pig. Now I joke, I joke. But don't miss the truth here. That marriage is the major vehicle of the gospel's remaking of your heart. It is the major vehicle from remaking your heart from the inside and out. The, the reason marriage is so painful and wonderful is because the gospel is so painful and wonderful. 
Luther called marriage the school of character. And so that he would go to school and learn about character and learn character. And it was the fast track of sanctification. And so that it took to have a wife tell you how disgusting you might be to actually change some things. And it took until you actually meet someone else to see how selfish you actually are to actually change some things. And so that marriage is this school of character, this, this track of sanctification. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5. Paul, Paul's explaining what we're talking about right here. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting our passage right here. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul just did right here, he said that when God created marriage in Genesis 2, he already had in mind the saving work of Jesus Christ. That marriage explains the gospel, and the gospel explains marriage. And so that when God created Adam and Eve, and Eve and Adam, he did that for the purpose of them seeing Christ as the groom, and we as the bride. And so the Bible begins with the marriage to tell us what the real marriage actually is, and it ends with the real marriage to to remind us of what the real marriage actually is. And so even if we're given the gift of singleness, don't discard marriage. Don't dismiss it. The real marriage, the real helper, the real completer is not a husband or a wife. It's Jesus. The bachelor we're all actually pining for, that the one who's actually our helper, the one who's actually your husband, ladies, is Jesus. Don't dismiss marriage because we're actually made for it. And this earthly one is great, but it helps us understand the better one. And even if you're in a bad marriage, and some of you guys are in bad marriages, and you may be thinking, my spouse is killing me. We literally killed our spouse. We literally killed our spouse. And so that Jesus Christ, our spouse, has been in the world's longest and worst marriage ever. And he is still committed to us. He continues to love us. He's the perfect spouse, the perfect helpmate. He is perfect love. And so that we can finally see that we're the betrayer. We're the backstabber. We're the one who doesn't listen well. We're the one who's distant and cold. And so don't you see that marriage here on earth actually paints a picture of what marriage will be, whether it's good or bad here on earth. And so this is everything right here. The way we see our marriage to Jesus paints and reflects and impresses upon our marriages here on earth. And so ask the question, is my spouse's sin worse than mine? Until we actually look at that marriage and see the beauty of the gospel impressing upon us, the answer will always be yes. It's always their fault, not my fault. But the gospel is this, and we had that as a meditation earlier here from Jack Miller. The gospel is this, that he says, cheer up. You're more sinful and messed up than you know, and yet more loved than you dared believe. That's how the real bachelor Jesus loves you and loves me. And if that's true, that actually changes the way I see my current spouse. That, that, that takes me back to the very first day that I saw her. And I said, you love me? 
it, 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 it refreshes our minds. It hits the reset button, and we say, you love me? I mean, with me? With all that I've done to you, all the ways I've betrayed you, you love me? And so it makes the log in my eye get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the specks in her eyes get smaller and smaller and smaller, and it makes the love of Christ extraordinarily bigger, and we get to see how beautiful that is. So right here in the very beginning, when God said, let me show you how the world's meant to be, God had in mind Jesus Christ leaving heaven for earth. He left for you, and then he cleaved and glued himself to you so that when he dies, we die. We're going with him because we're cleaved to him. And then when he rises, we rise because we're cleaved to him. We go to heaven with him. And then he weaves himself into us and so that we are one flesh. And how beautiful is that? That the true marriage impresses upon our marriages here now so we can look at that and say, that's what it's meant to be. That's what it's meant to look like. Let's pray.